From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And hello out there in Radio Land. It is I, your moderator, your host. I am Justin Russell, and we are live for now. Here in Studio A at Podcast Village in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., your nation's capital. Time for the best political talk show you never heard of. Joining me as they do every Tuesday on the line is the former contributing uh, contributing reporter for Huffington Post. He's also the author of several books, including American Politics on the Rocks. He's Rich Rubino. Hey, Rich. Hey. I, I forgot to give you your usual from a non-disclosed location in the Bay State. Uh, <laughs> trust me, it was a long weekend. Anyway, uh, <laughs> behind the glass, keeping us honest, as always, Rob the Engineer. Eric Thomas is doing producer-type stuff uh, around the studio. Dan uh, Dan Lipner and Sharma Lachari should join us here later in the hour. But for the first segment here, we uh, you know you, you've heard us talk about all of the issues regarding the intelligence community, all the issues happening in the Middle East. We are absolutely fortunate to have with us a special guest today. He is the former uh, CIA uh, officer and uh, I guess executive. Were you, you were part of the senior executive? Club? No, 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 no. Oh no, okay. I don't look that old, do I? I, 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 I actually, that, that's true. I, that, I just gave away my age now. Uh, he is also the director of a movie called Mosul, which is a documentary about the war against ISIS Daesh in uh, the fight for that Iraqi city. Dan Gabriel. Dan, thank you for joining us. This is fantastic. Justin, thanks for having me. No, no, no. Honored to have you. Uh, First of all, get this out of the way. Thank you for all you've done for the country. You know, we, we talk about that and we say this to the military all the time. We don't do enough to say, hey, you know, the guys in the intelligence community actually give up a large part, and their families give up a large part of their lives in support of what you do to defend America. Uh, so thank you for that, number one. Uh, first of all, let, let's let's talk about the movie for a second. Um, this is a fascinating movie. I, I watched it uh, in the in the uh, in the feed that you sent us, and it was not what I expected. It was very much uh, eye opening as far as what the truth on the ground is there in Mosul and the fight against ISIS. Let me start off broad and we'll, we'll draw down into the bigger subjects, but as you were putting this movie together, what was the biggest surprise that came out of your film in Mosul? Well, I think what you just got to, the, the truth, and, and trying to understand what is the truth. Um, if, if, there's a, if there's a single theme uh, that runs through the whole film, it's really that... Even you listen to these guys and you hear three different people talk and you get six different answers to the same question. Uh, So it's, you know, through the eyes of the journalist, the narrator that we use to tell the story, Ali Mullah, uh, we we tell the story, but we don't uh, tell you what to think. We, We show you what he's observing and witnessing and experiencing. Uh, and, and hopefully you're left at the end of the film not necessarily sure what you just saw. Um, it's it's more sensual, uh, sensory in the, in the sense that you're looking at uh, all of these different events and hearing all of these different uh, assertions. But it's it's not – you're not certain that any of them are, are factual or, in fact, correct. Did it surprise you that you got all the access you did to – uh, the defense forces there in Mosul. I mean, because as I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself, this is unprecedented, the level 
of access and openness that they brought to you and your crew. Did that yeah. shock you? Uh, it, it didn't. Uh, we, we actually have a great network uh, that we've worked with in Iraq uh, for some time, as well as on a, on a previous uh, TV show that we actually did on ISIS defectors. Uh, these guys, like you said, they were right on the front line in, in harm's way. And I think the unique thing is that it wasn't just on one side of the battle or one side of the conflict. They were able to embed themselves with the Sunni and the Shia and the Kurds and the Christians. So what you end up getting is is kind of a view of the story from from all of the different sides. Uh, and of course, we didn't we even have a, an ISIS uh, prisoner on on film too. We sit down and talk with when 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 watching the film. One of the one of the great comments that I that I caught by uh, a a leader of the militia that I never even thought would be your stereotypical uh, armed rebel in the region was uh, was the wife of a killed uh, um, officer, I right. guess, in the Defense Forces. She made a comment that kind of struck me and said that sectarianism is more dangerous than a nuclear bomb and chemical war in chemical warfare. Is, is that... A haunting statement that really rings true, especially with your time in Mosul. Yeah, and it's uh, it's also a very insightful statement. So the the woman you're referring to is Om Hanadi. So right. she is uh, uh, she's probably actually in her late 30s. I know she looks quite a bit older than that, having dealt with what she's dealt with. You can imagine why. Uh, but she is actually a widow two times over. Oh. Uh, her 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 latest husband was killed by ISIS forces. He was a he was a policeman in the area. So this woman is it becomes just j- jumps out of the screen because she's such a larger than life character. She's a contradiction. Uh, she's a female. She's a Muslim, but she's she's also leading this ragtag uh, militia. Um, in this case, she's Sunni, but she's also being funded by the the Shia by the Iranians ultimately um, to do what she's doing. Which and she's essentially a vigilante uh, that's leading uh, you know a, a handful of units under her. Is is this truly an issue as? In particular with Mosul, I, I noticed, it, it almost seems like this is street justice gone wild. Uh, is this, in fact, vigilante defense of Mosul, or is this something that is a lot more organized and we're just not seeing it? Uh, there's a spectrum, really, and that's that's what we cover in the film. Is On one end of the spectrum, you have a very loosely organized, uh, very poorly trained, poorly equipped, and in this case funded by Iranians, a militia that she leads. and. You know, to your to your point about street justice, I mean, there's accusations, human rights accusations, I guess, uh, against her that she's actually cuts the heads off uh, captured uh, dash fighters, and, and she's not cooking and, heads and boils them. Right. You know, we have a scene in, with her in the kitchen. She's there <laughs> cooking chicken, and and she looks up at the camera, and she just kind of deadpan. She's like, "No, I don't do that." You know. <laughs> of course, you're by her saying that, you're even more convinced that, of course, that she does. Right. Uh, uh, but again, it, she's a she's a great character. I, I want to get back to what you said though, or, or to her comment, which was sectarianism is more dangerous than nuclear chemical weapons. And I think that's so insightful because if we look at ISIS as the problem uh, in Mosul or or right. the, the larger region, we're kind of missing what really is the the first existential problem, which is the sectarianism. Uh, without the sectarianism, Mosul never gets to take over control of uh, ISIS. Never gets to take control over Mosul to begin with. So she, what she's doing is she's identifying kind of what the problem will be long after ISIS is gone, and that's the that's the clashes between the Sunni and the Shia for the for the most part. In the movie, you're very clear at identifying the PNF as is largely the defense forces of Mosul. 
you also stated the fact that they are funded knowingly by the Iranian government and other sectors inside Tehran. Does that should that give Americans a little bit of pause? Is it something that maybe is a red herring? Is it something that we should really be concerned about? Well, you want to talk about the surprising things in the film. I think for for many viewers that, that haven't been following this closely, when they see the Iranians on the same side as the U.S. Right. And the same side as the Russians and the Syrians essentially fighting ISIS, they, they kind of sit back and scratch their head for a second. But, yeah, the, the fact is they played a significant role, um, it, you know, in their own quarters and sectors uh, with, with what they did. And, you know, it, it, of course, leads into the question now that Mosul is liberated and ISIS is defeated, at least uh, in that in the political context what happens afterwards. Which leads me to my next point is, is there a lack of governance? It doesn't seem like the government in Baghdad has a truly stronghold in that part of Mosul. You know that uh, with the uh, with the advent of the Peshmerga being active in the fight against ISIS, there's call for uh, the recognition of an independent Kurdistan. Is Mosul kind of caught in the middle of a power vacuum or a power struggle that could get a lot worse before it gets better? It is, and that's why we picked specifically that city uh, to do this film on. We could have told a similar story. We could have picked Ramadi, uh, which had been you know, a, a, a pawn in 2004, 2005 in our engagement there, and then also was recaptured several times by ISIS. Uh, we could have picked Raqqa across the border in Syria. But Mosul, number one, it was where Baghdadi declared the caliphate. Right. Number two, it's the second largest city in Iraq, and it and it has it's it's uh, geographically located right under the border, um, but in the sense that the Iranian and the Shia uh, components of the Iraqi security forces were the ones that ultimately liberated it. The, the contradictions uh, inherent in the story were, were what uh, made us select that. Let me go back to the, to the question on Iran. Is should Americans be concerned of the involvement and the influence in the region of Iran? They should be aware of the growing influence uh, in Iran. Which Are they is, a course, threat? Uh, well, look, I mean, I, I think what you see in ISIS uh, and what you see in Mosul is they, they were able to um, at least uh, contribute to the solution of the particular problem of defeating ISIS. So that's where I like to start and, and try to, to try to work it back from there. But, but you see, that, to me, that, that seems like a, a almost like a strange dichotomy because what we have is, again, you know, here they are. The Iranians are our allies, yet on a daily basis, we almost go to war with them, with the current administration. Same thing with the Pashmurga, who literally gave lifeblood to defeat ISIS in that region. And yet when they claim an independent Kurdistan, the rest of the Western world still considers the Pashmurga a terrorist organization. How do we deconflict that? Or can we? Well, I, I think the historical example is 1945 uh, and, and where we were after the end of World War II, sitting in Berlin and, and seeing the Iron Curtain you know, uh, drawn across, uh, across Europe. Uh, and what I what I see is is the the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran taking place in Mosul and other other places that there's proxy conflicts and uh, that includes Yemen and Syria and Lebanon. So I, I think when you pull back what's really happening in the region, Mosul becomes that metaphor for the modern Middle East. Is it is it something that we are burying our head in the sand as Americans as far as how we deal with that part of the world? But I think we have to be, you know, so there was a lot of talk the last couple of weeks, of course, about Iran and right. the, the ratcheting up of tensions. I think what Americans need to be mindful of is the sacrifice that's been invested in Iraq and the potential for that to slide back if we get into a conflict with Iran. The conflict with Iran, of course, wouldn't be contained to Iran. It would perhaps, uh, by and large, take place a lot of it in Iraq. 
But how, how does, I mean, it, it almost seems like we're kind of caught in a, in a rock and a hard spot right now with the, you could call it backing of the current government in Baghdad. Iraqis and Iranians have been mortal enemies for decades. Is that a powder keg that still hasn't been lit yet? Is that something we need to keep an eye on? Is that the next dangerous situation? Well, I think to some extent that's uh, why we saw ISIS take over Mosul. Uh, it was really the the Sunni fear of the Shia of Iran uh, that led them to welcome ISIS as liberators. ISIS was welcomed into Mosul as liberators at the time, um, with really a small uh, a small resistance uh, that that was quickly snuffed out. Dan Lipner, you have a question for uh, Dan Gabriel. Uh, so, with the uh, proxy issues between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, with in this case Mosul being a center point, who's really the worst actor of the two? I mean, we we've obviously chosen sides uh, with Saudi Arabia, but from your experience, is one better than the other? Or are they both are, are they both problematic? To be generous, well, I, I, look, I, I think there's there's certainly problems within both. And, and again, your point is well taken. What, you know what's what's happening in Yemen right now with this, this proxy conflict that, as you've pointed out, we've taken the side of Saudi Arabia providing weapons. Uh, Again, the point of this film is to raise awareness of these. Uh, what what people may not understand is happening. Uh, the second order effects of of doing something like that uh, to to let them see the involvement of uh, external groups involved in Mosul and the liberation from Mosul and the battle against ISIS that they may not have uh, considered were actually part of the equation. Uh, and and that's that's of course Iran is is the big elephant in the room. Well, aside from the the actual locals, is there a good actor that is a third party actor in the region? Switzerland. <laughs> it's, it's not really the region. Uh, Kuwait's been quiet. They've yeah. been pretty pretty good. Well, when you go back, when you go back to this issue on Kurdistan, it, it, it seems to me, and and having dealt with the uh, Kurdish government and being on Kurdish TV before, uh, and being familiar with their fight for independence. It seems like every time we give them the raw deal, they're still there backing and supporting American efforts in the region. Does recognizing an independent Kurdistan help our standing and help maybe stabilize the region a little bit? Yeah, I, you know, I, I haven't heard anything about anybody in the administration considering that or, or proposing that. They, uh, they're not. Yeah, maybe maybe they should be. Uh, I think it's a good point. Uh, I think it, it goes back to it goes back to our kind of contentious, oftentimes contentious relationship with Turkey and then their involvement in NATO. And it, it gets complicated, of course. But look, they had yeah, the Kurds. I mean, they did a great job and, and they were uh, uh, fearsome fighters and, and certainly much more effective than, than many of the Iraqi main forces. Uh, but of course, they had their own self-interest as well in, in terms of what was happening to them uh, under ISIS rule. And it was it was brutal. Speaking of Iraqi forces, tell me about Crocodile. That guy fascinates me. Right. The guy, he's like half lounge singer, half commanding general, half public affairs rep. Tell me about this guy. <laughs> I, I mean, he he's got the probably the best job in the Iraqi government. You know, he just cruises around in the van, kind of showing uh, outsiders uh, the, the 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 view that he that the Iraqi government wants them to see. Uh, I mean, he's um, 
you know, he's 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 singing war poetry and you know, uh, giving himself a shout out to the camera. Uh, I mean, it's it's tough to describe him, but uh, yeah, he's he. Um, I know when we when we did our sound design, actually, uh, our sound designer for a second thought that he was a creation. We're like, no, these are. These are all real people. This, this, yeah, this, this is guy not is actor. not an actor. Not this actor. guy yeah. is absolutely this, he is. a real Iraqi right. military official. Uh, should we be concerned that that's the type of leadership that the Iraqi Defense Forces I, I are think, using? I, I think we should be more uh, more optimistic when we look at guys like Captain Allah, who is right. a little bit more intellectually uh, probably relevant to our conversation in terms of what his, what his hopes are and some of the lines that he has in the film, which are pretty pretty. Um, Insightful. Talking about uh, talking about Captain Allen and talking about some of the very graphic and very real uh, fight scenes, combat scenes in the movie. Uh, were you surprised that your film crew was actually that much engaged in active combat situations? I mean, the, I, the, the one scene that still kind of uh, kind of sits with me. Is the picture of a obviously American AR-15 still in the safe condition with blood all over it, and the guy couldn't even get off get it off a safe and start fighting? Did that kind of violence? Were you shocked that you guys were exposed to that kind of violence? That you saw it, and how did you come out of that feeling? You know, I I think Captain, uh, not Captain, I think Ali, the narrator, uh, actually addresses this himself on the camera when he's having a discussion with Captain Allah. And these two kind of bond over the reason that they're there. And in Captain Allah's uh, uh, perspective, he's there to help build a new Iraq. And he's he's from Basra. So this isn't his fight. He's a Shia. He he doesn't need to go reclaim his church in Karakash outside of Mosul. Uh, he he doesn't have a a dog in the fight, but he's he's like the the Chamberlain dude in the in the uh, in the movie Gettysburg, you know, the right. uh, school teacher from Maine and, and and joins up to 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 have a, an impact on what the the future of the the, the United States will be. Um, so Captain Allah has joined and talks about his vision for the future of a united Iraq and again pushing aside the sectarianism. But for Ali's standpoint and the journalists that were there, they too have the same kind of vision. So what they're trying to do is is also to take a risk to show and tell the story, and I think they do an amazing job of that. Rich, you have a question for Dan Gabriel. One thing I'm wondering is kind of, and I, and I think a lot of people confuse this, but how, what is kind of the amalgamation or what was the breakoff between ISIS and al-Qaeda? Um, I always hear about al-Qaeda in Iraq, but then I often hear, you know, you often hear about ISIS, and I think a lot of people conflate them, but what are their differences and why did they break off, if you know? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I would say it's uh, it's at least a, a heavy dotted line. It's it's not uh, incongruent at all. So there, there's probably more difference between in what we would call 2004, 2005, 2006 Al Qaeda in Iraq from uh, the main Al Qaeda at that point. There was probably more of a split, and we saw that with Zarqawi. Uh, the Zarqawi's claim to fame was just presenting a very visual and graphically uh, brutal uh, presence on camera, and this is that's where that's where they decided. You know, we're not going to we're not going to hide the fact that we cut heads off, you know, and and right. ISIS's real brutality uh, and their penchant for for doing these kinds of things on screen grew directly from from Zarqawi. Um, in, in terms of the organization, what, what was different about ISIS is that they they chose to, to do what they called uh, the near fight instead of the far fight. This is something that bin Laden talked about back in the early 90s about whether to fight the local government or to fight the you know, the guys in the West. And of course, this is exactly what they chose to do, uh, they, they chose to to take on the Iraqi government, the Syrian government, uh, and it was quite effective for a, for a handful of years. 
So the, so basically, so Al Qaeda's basic goal was to take on was to take on the U.S. to take on the far to take on I guess you'd say the far enemy, whereas ISIS wanted to take on the near enemy. And then as Iraq, but are, are there, were their objectives the same in terms of the caliphate, or was or were the objectives different in terms of what their end state would be for both organizations? Yeah, I, I, I think at, at the very end of the road, they they probably sort of envisioned the same type of caliphate. But but ISIS's tactical uh, and really even strategic approach was to do that by by claiming land, uh, starting in Sunni areas, and then and then to expand that way. Um, you know, where, whereas Al Qaeda, of course, had that that far approach that Bin Laden would talk about. Thank you. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the end game here. Uh, number one. The end, you spent how many years with the CIA? Uh, nine years. Nine years. Yeah. Uh, you've done tours in just about every hot spot in the world. It, under the current administration, the intelligence community's taken quite a bit, um, for lack of a better term, they've taken body punches routinely. Uh, is Is there a morale problem in the intelligence community right now because of the lack of whether you want to call it support, the lack of defending their actions, is there really problems inside the IC? You know, I, in terms of morale and the workforce, uh, my you know my time is a little dated from there. So right. you know, I, I don't necessarily have the uh, the rat lines back in there that I used to. Um, but let me speak to it as somebody that left the organization right. and look at it in terms of legacy, okay. because you know, I I just haven't been there in, in a number of years. No, that's fair. That's fair. So I don't I don't know what people are talking about at the at the Starbucks there these days. But here, here's what I can say, uh, you know the 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 agency took it on the chin. The CIA took it on the chin pretty much the day after the inauguration. I mean that that trip out to Langley. I think it was the Saturday after, um, right. And that speech and and how that all went. And unfortunately, the the battle lines I think were drawn at that point. Um, for for you know a, a conflict so to speak uh, between the administration and, and the senior leadership of the agency, uh, I, I know that was very painful for for pe- from former agency uh, people to to, to watch and, and and to and to go through uh, because the people that I work with and I'm I'm certain 100 percent certain the people that are still there right now uh, take the same oath of office that the president did and the same oath of office that the military does uh, and and their their intentions. Uh, you know, uh, certainly were not to steal an election or to rig an election. Uh, so I, I think that that was probably uh, hurtful for, for people that were certainly are there now and, and have been there in the past. Right. Uh, back to the movie real quick, because we've only got a few minutes left in the segment. And where can you see the movie? The, the movie, I mean, you've been in several film festivals. Uh, where can we actually watch the movie for our listeners who are interested? Uh, well, you can see it on iTunes and Amazon. Really? Uh, so you can stream it on iTunes and Excellent. Amazon. It's it's pretty much on every cable on demand platform. It's on you know uh, anywhere you can download a, a film, stream it, rent it. It's it's there. It's also on DVD and Blu-ray. You can get it from our website uh, or also learn more about the film. Uh, the website is Mosul-Film.com. Oh, okay, yeah. fantastic, fantastic. Uh, Dan Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. Thank you, sir. It was, it was great having you. Meet you, guys. Thank yeah, you. We'd love to have you on again, talk about some other stuff that's happening in the, in the region. We'll definitely keep you up. Eric, producer, keep that one on speed dial. There we go. Hey, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, in case you didn't know this, 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11. We're going to talk about that and talk about how important space is or... Uh, 
isn't, depending on your point of view. This is Backroom Politics. Stay with us. Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, I got to tell you something. That was actually a really cool interview. I want to thank again Dan Gabriel, uh, the director of the movie Mosul, which you can get on just about every streaming video service out there. Uh, 
we're back. Oh, and I got to give a shout out to uh, our our friend Laura Chavez, who actually set that up for us. Laura, thank you. Yeah, send you our love out there, and I don't even know where she is right now. Anyway, uh, in case you don't know, today is the 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11. 50 years ago today, we sent three brave astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and uh, and um, good good God, I'm, I'm I'm losing the the third one. Help me out here, Rob the engineer. It's like with the three tenors, you know, you got the, yeah. the two and then the other guy. I, I, good God, I cannot, I cannot believe I'm, I'm missing the, the the other guy. Only orbited the moon. He he didn't. He didn't that was that there. was God. What was it? I, I I just got done talking about him earlier today. Anyway, um, Michael Collins, thank you, thank you. Anyway, so many things happened regarding that launch and how great the country came together, how supportive of the whole mission was. I mean, a 10-year mission. It, it's just like today. It, it, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's exactly We're right. all unified today, you know. Yeah, we're all unified. Right. Well, I mean, but here's the thing. I mean, this is why I bring it up. Is Number one, let, let's just talk about the space program itself and the impact that this had. Uh, to me... You know, having a vibrant space program does so many things for our country. It kind of solidifies us about around one good mission. It solidifies us about supporting education, science, technology, engineering, math, careers. It it gets us, you know, it gets us excited. You you know, instead of having MAGA hats, you're having, you know, watch parties for launches. Where did we leave this, and why don't we have that? Rich Rubino, let me go to you first. Yeah, I think actually if you go back, you know, certainly in the Cold War, I think there were many respects, there were two, there were very many prongs to it, and one of them was the space program, which I think unified us, but on the other side of that was also the Vietnam War. I think that was really began at least, I mean, I mean, you know, the country's never been completely monolithic, but I think that began a lot of kind of the incredulous attitude specifically toward elected officials because when the Pentagon Capers came out, it proved that, you know, presidents, under Presidents Kennedy and President Johnson, they had been less than truthful about the, um, the totality, about how much, it, how much you know, um, effort it would take to win the war in Vietnam. I think the fact that the war continued to go on and on, and there were continued to pre-protest, I think that, and I think also during that time period, you certainly had the Civil Rights Movement, you know, when, um, when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act in 64, and then the Voting Rights Act in 65, I think you can really trace a lot of that back. It really goes back to the Johnson presidency because on the one hand you had Vietnam, on the other hand you had civil rights and you had, you know, you had certainly rioting, race rioting in 1967, and then you had Watergate following that where it became a very partisan issue and I think so that that really began I think, you know, really everybody in the American people being skeptical toward the decisions that the government makes because the government officials had lied to them. But you go back to the space program and you go back to President Kennedy saying, we're going to put a man on the moon. I think that basically put Americans in kind of, you know, gregarious mood that this could actually happen. Yeah. I think that was kind of the positive side of the Cold War. Right. Dan? No, I absolutely agree. And I also think we're leaving off the fact that um, the uh, Tom Brokaw uh, dubbed generation, the greatest generation, yep. uh, all serving together collectively uh, during World War II, that if you weren't, if you were not part of uh, serving in uniform, you are most certainly uh, serving here at home in some way, shape, or form, making sure uh, by uh, sacrificing for the great, greater good. 
And in addition to that, and I'm going to bring this to link this to present day, something that I did not know, I had caught a piece on uh, Soviet era uh, Cold War propaganda use that uh, while it's made news today as far as what uh, the Russians did online for the last election, that that particular strategy was nothing new. The Soviet Union, in fact, used to, uh, it wasn't left or right. It was wherever they could find a wedge issue and fan those flames to get um, to sow disorder in the United States, they attempted to do, which actually forced a moderation amongst both the left and the right to ensure that we all wanted to make sure that there were no cracks in our armor. So we, we regardless of what side we are, were on, we did not want that kind of strife. Yeah, but, you, you know, here's the thing is, I, I look back at that. I, I, I wasn't born. Dan, you weren't born. I don't think anybody here nope. uh, was born during that time. I was close. Well, not probably. this lifetime. Okay, we're going to do that. Then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, if you look back at history, you look at, like, 1968. Let's, let's call it what it was. 1968 sucked. As far as you had the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, you had the assassination of Robert Kennedy, you had the Chicago riots during the Democratic National Convention. I mean, 1968 was a suck year for America, yet at that same time in 1968, we had the Apollo 8 launch, which put men in orbit around the moon and returned them safely, which was the precursor for uh, Apollo 11. It, It seems like having a strong, robust centralized goal of going to the moon brought it almost made us forget some of those really crappy things that were happening around us rich oh no absolutely i mean 68 i think was really the vocal the focal point of perhaps you know of post-world war ii history i think that that was the year certainly um they that do the, the assassinations and then the democratic national convention and then hubert humphrey getting the nomination when all these you know people were protesting from the left wing, we thought that Eugene McCarthy should have garnered the nomination, and then Johnson announcing he wasn't going to run for re-election. That was really the focal point of American history, you know, after World War II, I think. And that was the one thing that happened toward the end of, toward the end of that year. You had President Johnson actually calling and congratulating the astronauts. So that was kind of, I guess, it was something that was, it was something that was happy, which was probably one of the worst years, really, um, in, really in American history, and the fact that. The fact that when, if you listen to it, when Johnson announced on March 31st he wouldn't seek a re-election, he also, in a sense, gave up on Vietnam and said, now we're going to try to get a peaceful solution as opposed to trying to go to win it. We're going to get, try to get another sort of solution. That was just an but but let me ask you this question, Rich. I mean, if looking back at 1968 the way it did, uh, does America go further down the cesspool if we don't have an Apollo space program? I don't know. I think that it's a good question. I think, though, that whether we had the space program or not, the fact of the matter is that we still had the Vietnam War. We still had the after effects of the, of the, um, of the Civil Rights Act. And we also at that time had, you know, had the Great Society and the War on Poverty, which divided left and right. I mean, Ronald Reagan, the governor of California, was saying that this is a socialist experiment, and certain Barry Goldwater, the senator from Arizona, was very much against this. And there was so there was this left-right split on that. I think that the anything to do with the space program was kind of you know was kind of an um, an addendum to everything else was going on. But I think it was I don't think it was it was specifically had anything to do with the fact that it was just a very divisive time, and America came pretty probably closer to a, to an internecine conflict than any time since the Civil War. But eventually, we just gradually kind of came out of that. But interestingly, 
The last time prior to the 1990s when there was actually a balanced budget was 1969, and it was interesting because all the money we put on the space program, Vietnam, Great Society, all that stuff, we still had a balanced budget at that time. But, oh, it, it, was yeah. actually, it was actually due to a budget mistake. The taxes really? that were raised uh, to pay for Vietnam, they actually overdid it, and so they actually oh. had excess revenue. So that's, really? that's why. It, it, Did it, not it, know it, that. Was, it was actually not intentional. It was a fortuitous accident. But you know, well, I, I look back. I look back at the you know the days that President Kennedy kind of kicked off the idea of having an active space program and challenging NASA and the country to get somebody to the moon and back safely. And it it almost seemed like that. It it, it was almost it almost seemed like a unifying you know, focal point mission to get everybody on track with one direction, one goal in mind, and everybody's going to get on board. And then when John Kennedy goes to Rice University and makes the, we do this not because it's easy, but because it is hard speech, it almost riles up America to say, you know what, we're not against doing hard work to do something this cool and largely had a peaceful mission to it, Dan Lipner. I mean, uh, what? <laughs> okay. Um, so, yes, it was a peaceful mission. And uh, worth noting, uh, uh, when Neil Armstrong of the Apollo astronauts was the only non-military member of the the Apollo team. Uh, so I I personally think it was not an accident that he was the, the person who first set foot on the moon. Who, who Neil Armstrong? Yes. Why do you say that? Because he was the only non-military member of the Apollo Civilian. Team. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fair um, enough. That said, the 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 Cold War shadow um, very much propelled us. Um, unfortunately, like with many things, and there's a lot of history as far as military advancements and technology, that warfare uh, that frequently uh, pushes things forward. Now, the fact that the space missions um, led to to a lot of amazing things that basically bring us to our modern day world. The fact that any of our cell phones that we, we have on our desks, um, that technology, the satellite technology that came from that all starts with, with, the, with NASA and, and our space mission. But in addition to that, it also did a whole lot more as far as the math and science and everything that we're talking about now as far as STEM technologies or, or STEM education. The, the numbers, and the, uh, I, I don't have them at my fingertips, but the, the reporting out there of the sheer number of man hours for every minute that f for a American to be in space, it was literally tens of thousands of man hours to make that possible. When, when John F. Kennedy said we were going to put a man on the moon, literally the technology did not exist. Right. It was an idea that he, that simply needed the entire, the, just the entire United States to be pushing in that direction, which was amazing right. and truly impressive. However, Americans, we need a challenge. We need an adversary of some sort uh, to push ourselves forward. And unfortunately, but, but, the adversary see, the is thing. us at the moment. Yeah, but, but here's the thing is, you know, I go back and uh, watching, if you want to watch, a, a, if you have time to binge watch it, on PBS, the American Experience has a, a series called Chasing the Moon. In that, uh, Nikita Khrushchev's son, Nikolai, 
actually talks about how President Kennedy approached uh, Khrushchev about maybe doing a peaceful joint mission to the moon. And the reason why they didn't, uh, Rich, is Khrushchev was worried that the Americans would see through the fake outward vision and threat of the Soviet Union and realized that there was nothing there there. Uh, Could that have been a catalyst to end the Cold War and maybe be a peaceful solution and give us a new road to a better partnership with the Russians? Um, I guess in hindsight, it would have, in hindsight, yes, but I think that, I think though that that all kind of even if, they, if whatever happened with the space program is kind of irrelevant, just because of what was happening with Vietnam, um, I think that was where, I think that was really what I think perpetuated the Cold War because we were, and then eventually, you know, when um, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, and in the 1970s, and I think those were, I think they, so you think there were a lot of military um, maneuvers, a lot of military things that I think were a lot more important than what was going on there. I mean, it's interesting, just like we were talking earlier about how the U.S. has this weird alliance with Iran on some things, and then they're fighting them just like you, just like we had alliances in, in Syria with, you know, with al-Qaeda in many respects, but it's fascinating because in, in, we, we could have, whether we could have, you know, launched a joint mission and had a relationship with Russia on that respect, but then have a, but then completely be adversaries when it comes to the whole communism versus capitalism relationship, which in much of the third world where there were so many there were so many wars going on and what was going on in Vietnam. I mean, it's just a very it was a very complicated world. But no, I don't think that that in, that in and of itself. I think that each country had their own interests, and I think that when it comes to their own interests, they would have they would have employed that when it came to when it came to just about anything else. I think the Cold War would have continued to go on as. For as, for as long as it did. Dan Lipner, you disagree. Yeah, it wasn't just merely the Soviet Union, because there was a joint space mission uh, between the United States and Russia, the Apollo-Soyuz uh, project, where there was a, a, a docking in, in orbit between a Russian spacecraft and an American spacecraft. And during that period of time, the American scientists were going nuts um, about the kind of technology that they were essentially revealing to the Russians. And there was a very different approach between how the Russians approached their missions to space and how the Americans approached our missions to space. Um, So much so that the the numbers of deaths, and I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, the Russians have lost a lot of people uh, in the process of of, of their space program. several catastrophic failures. And the American public never would have tolerated that. So there was a very different level of doing things. That said, the Russians were very impressive as far as their, their total number of man hours in space, how they got things done. And how they how they did, and to some extent still do, uh, get things into space on the cheap. Right. Um, it, it is pretty impressive, but th- it, that does come with a cost as well. Charmla, uh, we hear a lot of criticism about the money that was spent during the Apollo years, and those who were part of the social justice movement back in the late '60s would complain of the fact, you know, we we have uh, segregation, we have uh, poverty. Does one have to be necessarily mutually exclusive of the other, or does this give American society a justification to maybe not invest as heavily or as strongly into a strong space program like today for going to Mars? 
Look, I think that in any society where you have a limited amount of resources, even though the U.S. GDP and kind of the federal budget is massive, you know, and exponential compared to other countries, when you have a limited pot, you're always going to have varying opinions on how that pot should best be allocated. Um, I think that, you know, for the progressives, the issue, you know, as, as in so much as space is space exploration is kind of lumped in with greater military spending, their priorities do include sort of, you know, addressing our criminal justice system, think, tackling the opioid epidemic, you know, um, uh, improving our public education systems, improving broadband access, improving infrastructure, right? All these kind of domestic priorities that affect people's lives right now versus these military expenditures and maybe loftier goals such as the space program and exploration of Mars. That being said, you know, the progressive left is incredibly, you know, behind science and new scientific discoveries. And so I don't think that they are opposed to, you know, a further, you know, investing money in further space exploration and ensuring that the U.S. kind of retains its supremacy um, and its lead in the space race compared to other countries, right? You know, in the 1960s, it was really just us and the Soviet Union. Now, India, China, Soviet Union, all of these countries are, are in the mix and kind of, you know, advancing their space programs at a clip that is, you know, making them, could make them equal or greater to, to the U.S. space program. So I think that the, the left wing of the party is supportive of this endeavor, but at the same time is cognizant that there are all these very, very pressing domestic issues that also need funds allocated to them that don't get as much attention. Yeah, but Rich Rubino, when, when we go back and we look at the Apollo program and we look at all the different contractors that were involved in working for NASA to one goal, to get a Saturn V rocket that had zero catastrophic failures, uh, to get a man up into lunar orbit, let alone putting man on the moon and returning them safely, does is is that a good model to use as far as one NASA, one mission, and all the contractors working for them, or is the privatization of manned spaceflight like we see today with uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX, like we see with Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, like we see with Boeing and Northrop. Is, are, are we going down a, a better way or a worse way as far as meeting the goal of getting back into space and finding scientific achievement that way? No, I think the best, like many other things, it's public-private partnership. It's both of them. It's using what it's using what we have in terms of it, the resources that we have allocated for the space program to try to get there in one respect. But on the other respect, I think that anything that the public, the private sector is doing, specifically Mr. Bezos and everybody else, I think is also very is certainly benefit, very beneficial when it comes to the idea, just the idea that anyone has some sort of a profit motive. In the, involved in here, I think is certainly you know it just like if you I guess it would be like public it like public land if if you have land and you know you're probably not going to be taking care of rent care of land that's public land but if it's a private land you're probably going to be taking care of it more 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 um you're probably going to be taking care of it more so I think that's pretty much I think it's just public private ownership is public private in terms of the space program is probably the best. I mean, what, couldn't you call Dan? Couldn't you call Apollo a true public private partnership? All the contractors that ramped up under one NASA to make the goal of getting to the moon? I mean, I'm not certain I would call it a public-private partnership. So in the case of the uh, initial initial uh, space missions, everything from Mercury through Apollo, um, even through the shuttle program, um, 
initially the federal government assumed all of the risk, meaning that any catastrophic failure that occurred or even if if any portion of the system didn't work, the contractors were still going to get paid. There, w- there was no capital risk there for those players. Um, and to some extent, there's a great deal of history uh, on, and I'm going to go political here on, for a second, for, to dispel the myth that the private sector does everything on its own is simply not true. Everything from our uh, missions to space, uh, even the fledgling pass- uh, air, air passenger program in the United States, which was subsidized by the U.S. mail, uh, the, tra- the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, uh, electricity, all of it required the absolute hand of government in order to make these things possible because the incredible difficulty and risk for the private sector to do this on its own was damn near impossible. That said, at a certain point, once that risk has been assumed and the those areas, those markets had been opened to then transition to a point where the private sector can begin to do things on its own and introduce new efficiencies. I'm not, I'm not against it at all, but the government being there to say, okay, we can step in and we think this is a good idea. Let's see what happens. And, and in a lot of cases, we had a great deal of luck and it has created our modern world. And it's pretty impressive. Uh, Rich Rubino, you agree with Dan? Uh, for the most part, yeah. I mean, but I do think that the, I think there's a role for both the private sector and the public sector here. And I think for the I think for the most part that they both should be trying to accomplish essentially the same goal. But beyond that, you know, it's interesting. I remember when Newt Gingrich ran for president back in 1912. I mean, 1912. <laughs> He's not that old. Newt is old. Wow, Freudian slip. I think I was confusing him with William Howard Taft, maybe. But <laughs> no, when he ran back in 2012, I remember he had the idea of colonizing of colonizing Mars. And um, so they they so they asked um, you know, and then they, and then he was talking about how we should we should go on the moon, colonize Mars, and they asked. Ron Paul was running that year. They asked, do you think we should go on the moon? He says, no, but I think we should put some politicians up there. Yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, true. Now, the question, I mean, with the privatization of space, the whether or not there are, what the ground rules are and whether or not they are put in practice um, and maintained is a real question. I mean, the the risk of privatization of space is, um, you know, if Elon Musk wants to put a big Coca Cola sign or a Red Bull sign on one of his rockets before it goes up, um, are we going to find that distasteful, or could we get even more distasteful from that? Could somebody put a a, a giant Coca Cola advertisement on the moon? Right. Since uh, the 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 sunny side of the moon is always facing us, that's one hell of a marketing uh, opportunity. Right. Well, I mean, here's the other question: is you know, we talk about the the peaceful use of space, and President Trump has made it a point of getting a robust space program back in play, but he also contradicts it with the creation of Space Force. Every time I hear that, I think Space Ghost. I know. Space uh, no, Ghost. I know. You know. Every time I see Space Force, <laughs> I think of the cartoon from the 80s. And there was, if you Google cartoon Space Force, there's a whole series of it from back in the 90s, rather. It's, it's, it, it's it, bad. Han- Hanna-Barbera, it's, I think. It's, it, it's bad. It's bad. Anyway, uh, I think it was anime. But anyway, that's an, that's we, we digress. But the thing about it is I've, I've always been... I've always been a, uh, a a huge space geek, huge space geek, and uh, even to the point where um, I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. 
worked the space shuttle security program uh, back in the days of shuttle. Worked fourteen launches, and well, I got. I was actually at the very first launch of the Columbia. Oh, really? What return to flight? No, no, the original the, 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 in nineteen eighty. Yes, the very oh, first wow. launch I was at. You were there. I didn't even think you were born then. Interesting. Well. How, oh, wow, you're older than I thought. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the reason why I bring this up is because of the fact that, you, you know, when, when you actually see it, when you actually feel the rumble and you actually see an actual launch live going up, it, it, it kind of gets you hooked as saying, I cannot believe that man can come up with this type of technology to actually put somebody into space and not just put somebody into space. I mean, we had an astronaut on the International Space Station for over a year, and that was unthinkable 50 years ago. It, it, it seems like we've lost our way. I think the Russians had had people up for in excess of a year for the last I'm talking, decade. I'm, ta- I'm talking Americans. Yeah, they, they, they did. <laughs> oh, it, it's impressive that we could do it. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the hell of a thing they the did. It. The hell with the Russians. <laughs> no, but, the, but the thing about it is when, when we... When when we see that it, it seems like we've lost our way and we and we could find our way again with a strong space program, and, and you know what? it's a good target to have to kind of get everybody. We talk about you know uh, Republican Democrat. We talk about all this other crap, and yet the purest form of true American patriotism I think we've seen. I go back to the 1980 U.S. hockey team in Lake Placid, and I go back to Apollo 11 as far as bringing a total country and even a total world together with one focus in mind. Rich Rubino. Yeah, you know, know, it's interesting, too. This is one of those political issues that I think kind of cuts partisan lines. On the one side, you have certainly the libertarian right I think for the most part would be against the would, would be against the idea of spending more in space, and you have the progressive left that I think very skeptical of it. But then you have folks on both sides that represent congressional districts and um, that are very they represent congressional districts that stand a lot to benefit from the space program. For example, Sheila Jackson Lee, who's a progressive on most other issues, that's her main issue. And every time that the president of the United States would come down. And she'd always be, she'd always speak, whether it was President Obama or President Bush or President Clinton, she'd always be on the aisle. What happens in the State of the Union is House members can get, it's kind of a free-for-all. Whoever can get in the aisle gets to, be, gets to shake the president's hand and say something to him every time. And so she would always get to, right to the aisle. She'd get to like three hours before, and she'd always say, remember the space program. And then they, so that's something where I think it's it's kind of like it's kind of like trade in many respects. Yeah. It, cuts, it cuts partisan lines, it cuts ideological lines, and sometimes folks will have textile, um, like Jesse Helms, for example, a free marketeer, and everything else. When it came to the textile folks in North Carolina, right. he was not a free trader. And I think that basically, I think that's one of those issues that's kind of it's weird politically, and you have these kind of odd alliances. Yeah. Well, we're going to let that be the last word. I got to tell you something. It, it's a cool anniversary. It's it's something we should celebrate. Uh, but with that in mind, uh, you're going to be could... projecting a Saturn V onto the Washington Monument, I believe, starting tonight. Uh, I'm going to go see that tonight. Oh, yeah. Uh, on behalf of Dan Lipner, on behalf of Rich Rubino, Eric, the in- Eric uh, Thomas, our producer, Rob the Engineer, keeping us honest. Sharma Chari, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, special thanks to Dan Gabriel. Go, s- go download his movie, Mosul. It is definitely worth watching. And Mr. President, keep our eye on the ball. Strong space program, strong America. We'll see you next time. Thanks, America. Bye-bye.